In one, one, in one instance, you spell the word road out, another one you put RD period. Again, that's the breeding grounds for fraud. How do they use that? How are they able to manipulate those subtle differences? Because I, you know, as you were talking, I, I uh, opened my wallet here, and I notice I have a few credit cards. That's just my first and last name, and I've got some credit cards uh, that has my middle and issue, and other credit cards that uh, that uh, spells both my middle uh, spells my middle name out entirely. Right, and so what that does is that creates aliases on your credit report. So when someone submits an application in any variation or something even similar to any one of those three variations you just named, that's an opportunity for fraud. Wow. And how you can clean that up is getting it so everything matches. You start with your state IDs, your, your driver's license, your Social Security card, um, professional licenses, etc., then you take those, photocopy them, and submit them to your creditors so, so they change your account so they appear the same. We're going to pause for a minute. We've got more great insights from Scott Merritt. Scott was a victim of identity theft back in 2005-2006 uh, and um, literally ruinous to both his personal private credit as well as his business credit. Um, and it's taken him years to unravel this mess. In fact, even as we sit out here, uh, what has it been now, uh, eight years almost, uh, he's still dealing with the aftermath of all of this. Eight years later, if you ever shopped at a Target store around Christmas time, you could potentially yet be a victim of all of this. Seventy million credit cards were compromised, and as Scott suggests, it's pretty easy for them to gather enough information on you to be able to recreate your identity. The thought of two Craig Roberts running around out there is just too much for the world to handle. So how do you go about uh, reducing some of that risk? We'll talk about that and then more steps on what to do once you've unwittingly become a victim of identity theft. Back to more of our conversation with Scott Merritt as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. One of the biggest mistakes that people make when they try to address a breach of data um, or outright identity theft is to assume that your local banking institution is your friend, they're here to help, they will cut the thief off at the pass and make it all well again. But in fact, uh, there's not much motivation, shockingly, for banks to address this problem. That certainly seemed to be your experience. It it looks like they did little, if anything, but to exacerbate this horrific situation unfolding before you. Why was that? Well, and it's because uh, eventually they didn't want to be on the hook for the expenses. And it comes comes down to money. Banks make money by loaning money, not by dealing with, with fraud and things of that nature. And that's why it is critical when you are aware of that situation, you go into the bank and file an affidavit. They are not going to want to file it, but make them file it anyway. And, and and make sure you get a copy of it and then go file a police report. It's going to be important, um, Scott, to also file that police report? Uh, yes, and, and I will tell you from my own experience that filing the police report, because cops and police officers really don't like taking these reports, it took me 90 days for me to find the finally get my police report filed because they, everybody's saying, oh, we don't, we don't handle those, we don't handle those. But w- your local sheriff's office 
will handle them, but they're not going to want to handle it, just so you're aware. Scott Merritt is with us today. The book is Identity Theft, Recovery is Possible. We're talking about the do's and don'ts, what you need to know if it happens, and we'll also some, uh, share some insights on how to reduce the possibility of um, being a victim of identity theft. Though I would imagine in this day and age, Scott, the idea of totally inoculating yourself from this, uh, is that kind of a, a, a pipe dream? I mean, given all that Edward Snowden unveiled and what NSA is doing, including eavesdropping on our conversation right now, is this notion of, of pure of 100% protection, is that just a pipe dream? Yeah, I would say it's a pipe dream. However, there are some steps you can take that uh, will minimize and greatly reduce your risk. And the number one thing I would say is, again, do not use your Visa debit card tied to your checking account. You want to use a national bank credit card. That doesn't mean that your local bank doesn't have a national bank credit card. A lot of times, the local smaller banks will partner with a national bank to offer a credit card that is national in nature. Um, and how you'll know it's a national bank credit card, you may not qualify for this limit, but you call your bank and you ask them, what is the largest limit this card will is able to be in size? And if they say it's 50000 or more, that's a national card. So th- you don't want them, the thieves, in other words, to have access to your debit card, which, you know, a lot of us go into Starbucks, boom, we present the card. It's like a 3 or $4 charge. I don't want to have to deal with that on a credit card and then, you know, write a check to pay it at the end of the month. So a lot of f- folks just say, hey, I- I'm going to take this and treat the thing like a, a substitute for cash. That's that's a real risk you're suggesting. And if they want to do that, there is a way you can do that. You, there are what's called reloadable Visa debit cards. You can go and put... X amount of dollars on that card and then use it, and when it's used up, just throw it away and go get you another one. There are a lot of retailers that offer them. A lot of your smaller community banks offer those reloadable cards. I know a, a lot of your retailers, like Walmart, for example, I know offers that offers those. How so, bad did this get for you? I mean, you, you talked about them having access to both your, 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 your personal identity as well as your business credit worthiness. I know there was an extreme impact there at both levels, but it, it, did I read right in the book uh, that this got so bad that at one point you, in fact, had been, uh, <laughs> they had put out a felony arrest warrant for you? And that actually happened twice. I was actually stopped at an international airport. I was also uh, stopped at, 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 I got pulled over um, on an expressway and had the same thing happen. I had to go to the police station and all of that. It, it, it was easy for me to prove that it wasn't me because I am securities licensed. My prints were on file, and obviously they didn't match the, the felony record print. So, therefore, it was, it was very easy for me to prove. At that point, I then had to get the FBI, Secret Service, and Department of Justice involved, and my U.S. congressman, and, and, and they had to go in and scrub everything up and send me letters so that if it happened again, I had... I didn't have to go through the the whole ordeal all over again. This sounds like it becomes a full-time job just trying to piece your life back together again. It it can, but again, if you uh, one of the things that I learned the hard way was if I would have had some of the things that I was talking about having different variations of your name not present um, using the right kind of cards, not Visa debit cards, because I used to do the same thing everybody else does. Um, it, some of those things would have greatly missed it. And the other thing is, is there's a, an extreme process to follow, and if you make one little mistake, you have to start the process over. Uh, and there is no roadmap to help you with that process. That's really why I wrote the book, is I give everybody the roadmap, so that you know how, you, how to do it, when to do it, how to, how to prepare it, how to send it. 
so that you don't end up restarting the process over over and over and over. This is really a book that, you know, in, in some cases people go out and they buy a book because they've gone through this terrible experience and now they're trying to get some, some insights from somebody who's been down the road. This is almost a book that that ought to be bought ahead of time, isn't it? Uh, it is. And, and, and again, even if you haven't been an identity theft victim, if you read the book ahead of time, you can prevent it so that you're not a, a victim. And in the book, in one of the chapters, I even tell you how to structure your credit in such a fashion with little details of how your name appears, how your address appears. You can actually improve your credit score with those little techniques. Scott Merritt is with us tonight in this segment of the program. We're talking about identity theft. It impacts literally hundreds of thousands of Americans every year. Most recently, we've heard news of a breach of information that took place impacting 70 million credit cards at Target. Neiman Marcus, 40 million, 110 million credit cards out there floating around that are being sold on the black market um, amongst criminals. And you know what? Some of the names on those credit cards might be yours. So what do you do about it? We're going to talk more about this. We'll also find out from Scott how helpful were the credit reporting agencies. I mean, after all, they're they're kind of in the thick of all of this. How helpful were outfits like Equifax or TransUnion in helping them to unravel this disaster and get his financial life back on track again? We'll find out that and more as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The book is called Identity Theft. Its author, who's been down this road, unfortunately, himself, Scott Merritt, sharing some insights on what to do if it happens to you, and most importantly, perhaps, a preventative steps in order to um, reduce the risk of becoming a victim of identity theft. I understand that trying to unravel this mess, Scott, is often like, well, has been equated to like trying to get your name off the TSA no-fly list if, if in fact, you've been uh, in a, erroneously placed there. What kind of support, if all, did you receive from any of the, the big three credit reporting agencies? Were Asperian, TransUnion, Equifax, were they very helpful in, in trying to kind of unravel this spaghetti tangled that your, your financial life became? Uh, in the beginning, I would say no, but what happened eventually, once I was able to get the police report filed and I got some of the dispute letters done um, by attorneys and, uh, and different organizations that helped me along the way that I, by trial and error, once I kind of began to build the initial file, I was then able to go to my U.S. congressman and he was able to exert some pressure on Equifax, TransUnion, and Experian and get them to assist me. And I would point out in particular what Equifax did is they actually assigned me a, a liaison that liaised between um, Equifax and my congressman, and they were able to get the stuff off. Though it would frequently reappear, they were able to get the bulk of it off in about six months. Now, let me stop you there, because I remember reading in the book, you you talked in one chapter about how you had to get a letter written, and, and an attorney wound up soaking you for $375. Yeah. Uh, people are saying, wait a minute now, if I've gone through this, I've had my accounts have been breached, I am now fighting with the bank trying to get monies restored to my accounts, I have to go out and spend money on an attorney to unravel this, and worst yet, I'm you, you had to deal with your congressman to get help? Yep, yep. And, and uh, it, it, it's a process, and that, that's why, that's, again, that's why I wrote the book, because there's no rhyme or reason. Everybody, everybody in the process charges a fee, with the exception of the congressman. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so they're all in it for them. They're not well, all in it for you. If you succeed in the process, they're happy, but 
that's really not why they're there. And, and at the end of the day, even the congressman charges a fee. I believe they collect it every April 15th. Uh, Scott, so it sounds to me like this is a road that if you can at all avoid going down, you, you really want to avoid going down it. Spend the last few moments of our time together tonight. And again, I'm going to urge folks, this is really a book you need to get your hands on uh, so you can get better prepared because you don't want to have to go out and try to find the book after it's happened. You want to know what to do if it happens on how to quickly react and most importantly, some of the steps you can take to help reduce your risk going out the gate. And so this, these are kind of the homework assignment for all of us tonight is, number one, consistency in the way your name is written, the way you're literally down to the letter of the way your address is on, on bills. So if I have a credit card statement that comes in from Citibank and another one that comes in from Chase, I want to make sure that they're both adre- billing me at street, spelled S-R- it is spelled out as opposed to just abbreviated. Is that correct? Yeah, whatever way you, you have it appearing in one place, that's the way it needs to appear in all places. And the most common way to, to do it is how it appears on your driver's license is how you typically have it appear in every place else. Now, if if for whatever reason it's, it's spelled out on all of your documents and your driver's license is wrong, there is a one-page form that you can get at DMV and submit that. And again, of course, the state's going to charge you five bucks, but they'll, they'll fix it for you. All right. Walk me through, if there was a top ten list you had to do of some of the things that everybody listening right now ought to do to be proactive to reduce their risk, and some you've already mentioned, kind of walk us through what that list might look like. Well, again, obviously making sure your name and your address is correct. Again, making sure you use the same phone number. Uh, secondly, is uh, make a photocopy of every single thing in your wallet front and back and staple it in the order that it appears because you'll need that for the police report that way it's already done if you're going to go and apply for credit and you have to use your social security card photocopy it and then put your social security card back in your strong box or your safe do not carry it around in your wallet um those are those are some of the obvious ones but then again if you're going to make purchases out in the public do not use the Visa debit card. Use a national credit card, and when you and and I would recommend you put the majority of your bills on that credit card, with the exception of your mortgage. And then what you do is periodically just go in and use your bill pay service at your local bank and to pay your credit card, because then then that transaction is actually insured. Um, so that way you're minimizing the way the only people who have access to your checking account is your credit card company. Yeah, you know, we've heard that mail theft, for example, here in the Bay Area and a number of communities um, in the last several months, mail theft has been on the rise, uh, both stuff that's coming in and things that are going out. You'll see, in fact, they got a neighbor, take a, um, a clothespin and will hang bills that he's paying uh, on the lip of the mailbox, expecting the mailman to come and, and pick those up and take them to the post office as he's delivering mail. Isn't that an easy way also to steal those checks and, and wash them and rewrite them? Well, not only that, but what you've basically done when the, when when they do that, they now have your routing number, they have your checking account number, they have your name, they have your address, and how you sign your name. No. Oh. We're, we're literally giving away a lot of this, aren't we? I mean, people that use birthdays as um, passwords. In fact, there's a list that comes out every once in a while of the top ten most popular passwords, password being one of them. Uh, there are many degrees in which we're, we're kind of setting ourselves up for this, aren't we? You are. And, and that's why on my website at scottamerit.com, what I actually have is I have a free quiz that you can take. 
and it will actually tell you the different elements of your of your identity and your credit profile that are at risk that you need to deal with and that that will kind of tell you how much of a problem you're going to have or could have down the road because you're really playing Russian roulette it's a, it's not a matter of if it will happen it's a matter of when it will happen and obviously as you can see it's happening more and more often and that's why you got to make sure you're protected um, the other thing that I would recommend everybody if they if they if they don't want to put a lot of money on their credit card they can go get one of those reloadable credit cards put a couple hundred bucks on it use that to make your purchases at the coffee shop and wherever and then when it's done you throw it away and go get you another one yeah that's gonna cost you a buck or two every time you got to do that but it's cheaper than than dealing with what I had to deal with what about these uh, so-called identity protection services that are out there? Do they have any value? They, they, play, they definitely play a role, and, and there are different levels of those. There are ones where you can simply monitor your credit report, and, and again, I use one of them, and, and the reason why I do that is because I can get notified anytime someone uh, puts a, applies for an application in my name. It also lets me know if there are any variations of my name, address, because, again, you can get those with all three credit bureaus, and so you can see how it appears in each location and each creditor. Is scrutinization of your monthly banking statement and, and credit card statements also important? I know that in a case once years ago, somebody had lifted a, uh, a credit card number from me, and uh, what, what caught my attention was there were one or two charges on my following month's credit card statement for like $1.60. And I thought, now, I complain about people at the grocery store who, who buy $5 worth of groceries and they pick up a, you know, a can of Coke and a package of potato chips and they whip out a credit card to pay with it as, as opposed to cash. And so when I saw this tiny little charge, I thought, well, that's odd. And, of course, by the following month, that little odd item had, had turned out to be you know, thousands of dollars in erroneous uh, fraudulent charges. Do we need to be careful about that, too? Yes, you do. You need to, and that, again, that's why if you use a national card, when you when you become aware of those, you can call your credit card company, notify them, and they will take the charge off, and they will simply send you a form. You sign it, send it back, and your role is done. That's the advantage of using a national credit card over using your Visa debit card. With the Visa debit card, you could your risk is unlimited. You could literally be on the hook for every single dime where with the credit card, the most you can be out is $50. Well, and the other thing, too, to point out is, you know, if there's fraudulent charges against your credit card, they've gotten a hold of your credit card. They haven't gotten a hold of your money. If they manage to go in and vacuum out all the cash out of your account, yep. uh, you're now at the mercy. You know, and, and some states have laws that, that work toward protecting you. But, you know, if, if the $1,000 balance that was in there on Tuesday has been dropped to zero and you're bouncing checks now all over town, you're still at somebody's mercy to restore that cash to you the reality is that cash is gone and in some cases as you suggest the banks are uh, hesitant if at all to ever restore that money right and but again if you use the credit card you avoid all of that hassle because uh, for lack of a term it's kind of almost like an insurance policy Uh, and i hate to use that term loosely but uh, the, the reality is is there are fraud protections that were implemented during the credit crunch back a few years ago and they really tightened up the protections for the credit card. Unfortunately, they left the loop open for the Visa debit cards tied to the checking accounts. And that's why in my book, I, I spend a whole chapter on dealing with those very things. And again, if you go to scottamerit.com, uh, in my book, Identity Theft Do's and Don'ts, I not only give you the, the process, but I actually give you the letters to use so that all you gotta do is, is literally retype those letters with your name, your address, 
a copy of your driver's license, social security card, and where to send it, how to send it, and then how to track it to find out when you need to send the next letter. And, and in Michigan and the other states under federal law, if they don't respond within 30 days, it has to be deleted without exception. Wow. So some really solid advice all the way around inside the pages of Identity Theft. And as Scott mentioned, you can get a copy of the book um, and also take that complimentary test at his website at Scott A. Merritt. Think of Merritt like uh, Lake Merritt. ScottAMerritt.com. And we are so appreciative, Scott, sharing, Scott, from your, your pain and bitter experience um, of, of what happened as you were a victim of identity theft to help the rest of us from hopefully never going down that road. Identity theft recovery is possible. Do's and don'ts, what you need to know, what you need to do. Details on the web at ScottAMerritt.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Certainly an important moment of a sense of great pride by many parents to see their child walk across the stage in the cap and gown, diploma in hand, having accomplished a solid 12-year career in high school. This means a lot of things. Not only a sense of um, accomplishment, but then, too, it raises questions about what's next. For many students, that means continuance of their scholastic career by moving into college and university. Students may, in many cases, stay close to home, in fact, live at home and maybe attend a couple of year junior college. Others might be making plans to head off somewhere else to college. Well, whatever the plans might be, at the end of the day, we have to admit, this moment in time for students who have graduated from high school and are now beginning their scholastic career at college or university are no longer children, but they're also not quite yet adults. That raises a lot of questions and concerns for parents who understand that there's going to be a loss of control at a lot of levels. And one of the biggest arenas where we seem as parents to worry the most is, did we do the right job to train up our child in the fear and respect and ammunition of the Lord so that they will be able to live out their own faith? Essentially, are they ready for the life that will meet them ahead, and how do we know? We'll answer some of those questions as Neilan Brown joins us. He, by the way, Executive Director of Focus Leadership Institute at Focus on the Family. And Neilan, great to have you on the program. Thank you so very much. Wonderful to be with you today. Boy, this is a, this is a question that a lot of adults struggle with about their uh, children graduating from high school as much even the students themselves are wondering, gee, yeah. am I ready? What's going to be facing me out there in the big wide world ahead? That's it. Yes, indeed. It's, it's a big question. And I think for a lot of parents, it's a looming question, you know, <laughs> that, that they're looking at for some time as they're, you know, watching the years go by, blowing out the birthday candles and all that good stuff. But I think for a lot of students, sometimes for them, it comes as a bit of a shock, you know, that, that it's that first night that you're in the dorm by yourself. No one's forcing you to go to class. Uh, so, but I know certainly for parents, it is a big concern for sometimes sending them off um, into continuing education away from home. You know, we see this as sending our children off to get the answers, the answers that they're going to need about life and who they are as a person and preparing them for uh, either marriage and or a career, maybe both. Uh, But oftentimes we find that many of these students now free from the day-to-day routine that happened under mom and dad's roof. Yeah, they go to school to get the answers, but they tend to oftentimes come back with an awful lot of questions about their faith. Indeed, indeed. Uh, we, We find that with many of the students that we serve here at the Focus Leadership Institute, they are wrestling with very big questions. And I do, I do think we, we send our students off to college campuses to get the answers, but on a lot of campuses throughout the U.S., 
God is no longer a part of that answer and or that equation. So students do find themselves sitting in classrooms and, you know, and kind of circulating amongst populations much broader and much different um, than what they knew at home. And when you're in those classrooms, it does raise some pretty big questions. It certainly can. For parents, I guess the big concern is that it seems to be a time when many of the familiar safety mets are missing, meaning, uh, Neilan, the child is perhaps in a different part of the state or in another state altogether, so they have different set of friends, they're not attending the same church anymore, sure. much of the usual network that we just sort of rely upon to be there for our kids. All of that has changed dramatically, and now all of a sudden they're, they're in this place where we know that there are competing worldviews at a lot of levels, and, and I guess therein lies the big concern for many parents. Will my son or daughter be able to survive? absent the safety net that's been there for the first 18 years of their life. Indeed, indeed. That, that's, that is the big question. And one of the things that we find, I've spent a lot of time around college students, and I've seen those who continue to be committed to their faith, as well as those who slip away. We can provide those safety nets while we're within the home. However, a relationship with Jesus Christ is quite personal. I think one of the mistakes that can be made is to expect the safety net to get to get the individual child into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, I heard one brother of mine uh, put it well who works with a ministry called Access that works with high schoolers. And one of the things he says is, I had to move from renting my parents' faith in Christ to owning my, my own faith in Christ. And I think a lot of times we put so much trust into the safety nets that we neglect to prepare our students for ownership. Does, does that kind of make sense? It does, and, and I think it leads to the old adage that um, God has no stepsons or stepdaughters. We are all immediate direct heirs, <laughs> and so the relationship needs to be fostered as such that it is a personal, intimate, direct relationship, and not one that's lived out vicariously through mom and dad. There, there you have it. That's exactly the point. And here's the good news. For parents who may hear this and think, boy, I don't know if I did the best job helping my students to own their faith. I know I sent them to church a lot. I, I know I had them in this group and in that group. But I really didn't spend a lot of time talking about these things. The good news is it's never too late. Statistics still bear out that even in the midst of students leaving home, um, having all of these various professors and hearing these worldviews, and in addition to technology, which is bombarding our students with ideas and worldviews before they even leave home. And I think at this juncture, one of the fallacies we live amongst is our students aren't hearing other voices while they're at home. They're hearing those voices by elementary and middle school with these iPhones and iPads and, you know, all these smartphones and things. But Research still bears out parents have strong influence, even during the college years. So if you haven't been having that renting or leasing conversation and they're graduating now, it's not too late to start. You're still mom. You're still dad. Your voice carries a lot of weight. What about the concern, and I think it's a legitimate one, many parents would like to think that as they send their children off to uh, college that maybe the son or daughter is going to be uh, there on college campus um, expressing a vibrant faith and sharing with others around them, acknowledging the fact that uh, unless they're fortunate enough to attend a, a Christian-based college or university, that they're probably going to have plenty of witnessing opportunities. So there's one part of the equation. Then that kind of runs from being concerned about them having the ability to properly express their faith to what it's going to be like when they have to come in and defend their faith when challenged by other worldviews and differing religion views, and then, let alone that, even the ability of a child simply maintaining their own faith. Indeed, indeed. Well, 
Paul the Apostle writes a couple of letters to a very young pastor named Timothy. And in his second letter to him, you have Paul, who's later in ministry, Timothy, who's much younger in the faith. He knows that Timothy's going to be contending with a lot of pluralistic worldviews and all these various gods and all these things. And Paul's advising him. One of my favorite verses is uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, when he tells him, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed and rightly handles the word of truth. The, the preparation to defend one to defend one's faith is directly linked to one's understanding of their faith. I think a lot of students get concerned or scared to even speak about Christ because to be honest they're not they're not totally sure what they believe about Christ and Paul basically tells Timothy hey have a zeal for scripture have a zeal for learning about God I think we, we push our students towards learning in a lot of areas but a lot of the questions I have is are we really putting resources I mean I mean good resources like a true you which was done by focus on the family and actually filmed her in the focus leadership Institute or the truth project or even looking at international ministries like uh, Robbie Zacharias International Ministries, that, that wonderful apologist, Robbie Zacharias, who wrote a great book that I think every college student should read <laughs> called Jesus Amongst Other Gods, because many of our students who've grown up in a Christian home have never spent exhaustive time around um, Hinduism or Buddhism, you know, or Mormonism or any of these other um, uh, paths of faith as they're expressed in the college community, or even books that are more popular, like Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for Creation. I think one one of the things that we may, one of the ways we can help our students be more comfortable with defending their faith and expressing their faith is when we give them resources and don't just have them memorize scriptures blindly. <laughs> but we actually, not only do we give them resources, but we read the same resources and we have discussions about the evidence of the resurrection, the truth claims of Jesus Christ, and the legitimacy of the biblical canon. It's, it, it's simple to answer questions once you have them, and I've seen students who can strongly defend in their faith position in a loving manner through grace and truth as Christ uh, gave us as an example. But I think we really have to go deep in helping our students understand it's important to study and know your faith. Absolutely. And then the other thing, too, is the balancing the time. And I want to talk about that when we come back after a brief time out. If you've just joined us, Neilan Brown is with us, Executive Director of the Focus Leadership Institute, located at Focus on the Family. We're talking about the challenges, the worries and concerns that you as a parent have as your son or daughter heads off to uh, high school, oh, pardon me, as your son or daughter heads off to college or university, having completed their studies at the high school level uh, this May or June, and, and what are the concerns and what are the important points that we need to keep mindful of as parents and remind our children of? We'll talk about that next as our conversation continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to Lifeline. We're visiting today with Neilan Brown, Executive Director of Focus on the Family's Focus Leadership Institute. We're talking about uh, that exciting time in your son or daughter's life when they graduate from high school, but then that very fearful time when, in many cases, they're stepping out into the world without the safety nets for the very first time as they head off to college or university. And what does it mean for them to be able to express, defend, and maintain their faith? And, you know, Leland, I'm reminded you mentioned just before the break about the importance to continue to speak truth and, and continue to recognize the influence that parents have on their children's lives. You know, we, we start out with the speech that we give our son or daughter when they attend their first day at school or when they go off on their first date. 
debate or when they attend their prom. I guess there's another important speech that needs to be given as they head off to um, college or university. And I guess part of it comes down to reminding them about a balance in life, because let's face it, they're going to be in a new environment where they've got newfound freedoms, new responsibilities, new friends. And I guess they have to be reminded to make sure that amongst all the things that are so new, to make sure that they carve out time for their old, quote-unquote, faith. Indeed, indeed. God repeatedly calls us to be good stewards throughout Scripture. I think one one of the issues that many students run into in the college environment is, as we look at education today as a nation, we see it simply as preparing individuals to fit somehow into the economic system. And therefore, we lose the grander narrative of us being good stewards of the talents and gifts God has given us, developing those in college, and then having an impact. So I think it's so important not simply to make state stu- statements excuse me, to students like, make sure you're in class, go to the library, you know, <laughs> you better be writing those papers. But rather, we want to give them, what's the reason you want to go to class? You want to stop by the library, you want to write those papers. It's because God is weaving a grand tapestry in the world. And the purpose of you having time to go and study within the university or the college setting is so that you're prepared to be a part of that grand tapestry. I think it's so important that parents repeat those things. I was a first-generation college student, and I'll tell you this much. My parents did a wonderful job, even when I felt like I didn't fit in the college campus because I didn't know many who had been through a four-year institution close to my family. Um, My parents constantly, and members of my church community, constantly reminded me, God's going to use you for something great. Make Make good use of that time there. And I think I felt less like I was being beat over the head and more like I was being encouraged along in the race. Makes perfect sense. And, you know, helping them understand in that encouragement that, uh, you know, they're, they're going to hear this word freedom a lot, but the other word that needs to be tied into it is responsibility. There you have it. And to understand that uh, they, they need to maintain a level now of, of personal responsibility for themselves. Uh, you know, there, there's not going to be anybody there to say time to get up and go to school, uh, time to go and do your laundry, time to go and eat, time to go to church, time to read, time to, uh, uh, you know, spend some study time alone in meditation with the Lord. And so yeah. it's going to be important that they, that they set and establish, uh, I guess, a sense of, of spiritual discipline too then wouldn't it a, a very strong habit of spiritual discipline which leads to a strong habit of educational discipline but i think this is what's so important about spiritual discipline your children have to see you doing it before they can value it. Mm-hmm. And if they don't ever see you pray, they don't ever see us reading Scripture, and I have three children of my own, if Daddy never prays at the table, reads Scripture, we have discussions, that I cannot expect them to go out and carry that with them. Because we, we do, again, learn a lot from our parents' example. And I believe part of the reason why God calls children to honor their father and mother is not because, it's not only because he's holding the child accountable to honor them, but that also puts accountability on the parents. For you to be something that's worth honoring, <laughs> for you to demonstrate a relationship with God, so the child is to look up to you and follow your example. So I think it's so important that they have that structure. And let me say this, let me, let me make this last point. It's so important that we not be helicopter parents when they get into college. Responsibility matters. I agree with you 110%. 
I have experienced so many parents in my teaching career as a university faculty member who want to come and clean up all the mistakes of their children in class. And that does nothing but lead to a child who takes even less responsibility because mom and dad are eventually going to show up and save me from what I've done. So as we encourage them on in God's great plan, be spiritually disciplined, spend time in, in scripture, spend time in prayer, make sure you're attending classes and you're, and you're planning things out and you can have some fun, but you're also being responsible. I think it's also important as well to let students scrape their knee when they scrape their knee and not always run up behind them and attempt to fix the situation by chasing down their faculty member and telling them why even though my son didn't turn in the last three papers, they're just a really good kid. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there is an inclination by parents to want to be overprotective, and given you know the, their understanding and experience with the world, uh, I think that's a reasonable expectation. But it's not realistic when it comes to the relationship with the kid. But you know, it, it, that raises an important point. As children are going out, and everything is about new discovery. They're discovering themselves. They're discovering newfound freedoms, responsibilities, yeah. newfound friends. Is it important, at the very least, as we encourage our child, since they will cross paths with a whole? Variety variety of people, some of whom they will share the same worldview and values with, and many of whom they will not, to maybe find themselves in a position where they can come under, if not, again, the the, the hover parents, you know, at least have some access or exposure to someone who can provide kind of in that mentoring relationship the kind of guidance that they really need. Now, this maybe could be a teacher on campus, maybe a graduate student or somebody else, somebody that's not mom and dad, and yet is somebody that they can look up to that can, get, that can speak some truth into their life. That is so very important. And one of the, I think before students go on the college campus, one of the things parents should encourage them to do is number one, as as you stated, sometimes they're going across the country or across the state, uh, number one, find a local church fellowship. Many of the successful students I've seen who are really growing spiritually strong during their college years have a local fellowship, a church fellowship outside of their college community. And oftentimes that's where they will find mentors. But there are also faculty members on campus who can pour into their lives. And I think this is when it's so important that parents share their stories of those who have helped them in their walk with Christ and encourage their child. You find those people too. God has those folks out there for you. You do not have to do this alone. On every college campus, I would venture to say, or within the local community of the local church, a child, a young person can find a mentor who can pour into them spiritually and also help them through the process of grappling with big questions. I had a couple of faculty members who really made the difference during my undergraduate career, as well as a pastor and his wife who actually came and visited uh, me and my family this past weekend from the local church I attended during my undergraduate career, and they made an imprint on me as a young man in my view of family, in my view of truth, in my view of Christ and all of that took place while I was pretty far away from home and mom and dad weren't there. And actually oftentimes, you know uh, what will, uh, put it this way when I was a kid, Neeland um, my father was pretty stupid and it's amazing, the older I got the smarter my father got <laughs> <laughs> Of course, I tell you. When, when, when I say that in front of him, he doesn't quite agree with it that way. But yeah. certainly from the child's perspective, you know, when we're young, we think we know everything and our parents know nothing. Then we get into our 20s and our 30s and our 40s and some of us even beyond that. I, I don't know that directly, but I read about it. Uh, you, you, you learn that, you know what, mom and dad weren't so dumb. And so sometimes these mentors, as you point out, have an opportunity to speak truth into the life of our child at an age 
stage when they might not receive that truth from mom or dad, but would openly embrace that truth coming from an independent third party whose opinion they respect and they believe, well, it must be true because this person doesn't have an agenda at foot here. There you have it. And, And let me make sure I say this. Every parent who is sending a child away from home to college should be praying this prayer. Lord, send someone to disciple my son or daughter. Send a good, I think sometimes we, we just want to be the people to do it for our own children, you know. <laughs> so, so we say, Lord, send them to me. But I, I always recommend praying, Lord, send them someone who can touch their life and they'll listen to them. You know, someone who's rooted in the gospel, stands firm on biblical truth, and my child will hear them. Because you are exactly right. I remember when I got ready to marry my wife, suddenly my father knew all kinds of stuff. Yes. I said, wow, this guy has good things to say. And I wondered what happened during that period from me being 13 to 17 when he knew absolutely nothing. He, he, he must have been studying privately, quietly at night, you yes, know? I suppose, I suppose yeah. so. But suddenly, and I, I think, and that's one of the things parents have to understand. Young people go through phases. There is a questioning phase while they're in college, and they don't only question their faith. They question everything, (laughs) their place in the world, what they eat, what they drink. It's the reason that we have all of these causes that break out. I mean, college students, will they will protest any given cause because they're at a point in their life where they're sorting out society, sorting out what they believe, so on and so forth. So if you feel a little distance from your child, keep reaching out to them, keep loving them, because soon enough, Life happens, <laughs> and you start coming back around. <laughs> yes, exactly right. Well, some good, solid advice for parents to provide to their children and take for themselves as your son or daughter heads off to college or university. I'd like to thank Neilan Brown for being with us, Executive Director of Focus Leadership Institute, located at Focus on the Family. Leland, lots of resources available, too, through the website, focusleadership.org. Lots of, lots of uh, resources available there, and we would love for any parents to reach out and contact us. Uh, you could even shoot me an email. My email is on there, so contact me if any questions or, or thoughts, if there's any way we can assist with recommending a resource for your college student. Excellent. Again, on the web at focusleadership.org. That's focusleadership.org. And our thanks to Neilan Brown, the Executive Director of Focus Leadership Institute, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.